comes from uh, Colossians uh, chapter 3. I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. And if you want to follow along, that's on page 958 uh, in the Bibles uh, on the pews. That's uh, Colossians 3, starting at verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it, as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. Uh, think for a moment at what it took for you to be here this evening. Uh, last night you slept in uh, a house, a, a home or a, an apartment. Uh, you slept on a bed um, with electricity available to you, running water uh, coming when you turned on a tap, but quite different running water from the running water that uh, you used uh, for shower and toilet. That'd be important to keep those separate. Uh, that's called grey water. Uh, this morning you got dressed in some clothes, you put on some shoes perhaps, uh, and uh, you did some various things during the course of the day. You might have uh, driven uh, in a car on a road or caught public transport. Uh, you might have uh, walked along a footpath and uh, gone to see other people or maybe uh, went to uh, a restaurant or some sort of a venue, a garden or a park. Uh, tonight you came here to a, to a whole different building with a different configuration of electricity and water and paint and gutters and drains. I would say conservatively that a very small portion of the labour of a very large number of people, let's say 10,000 people, went into you being at church here tonight. Or you can look at it from the other end of the telescope. Tomorrow you will work. Uh, notice that I didn't say you will go to work. Uh, some of us will go to work, but not all of us. But all of us will work, and that's an important distinction that we'll come back to uh, in just a moment. Uh, tomorrow you will work, and the chances are that your work will bring some degree of order and coherence and blessing to the things of this world and the lives of people, which will enable them to go about their business. You are both the beneficiary of and a contributor to this vast interconnected web of expenditures of time and effort that means that life happens with greater dignity and meaning than it otherwise would. And the question for each of us is, how do we do that in a way that brings glory to God? We're in a series that fits right at the beginning of a year looking at resolutions, New Year's resolutions, and the way that we can take stock looking both backwards and forwards and resolving ourselves to align our hearts and habits more and more closely with the ways and will of God. And now, it turns out that the research says that New Year's resolutions work for many people. In fact, they work much, much better uh, than resolutions made at any other ordinary month of the year, like, you know, May. I mean, who'd want to make a resolution in May anyway? 
Don't bother in May. Once you're past January, it's a waste of your time. January is the time to make resolutions. People keep them. Um, more people keep them, and they keep them for longer when you make them in January. Okay, so this is it for the year. And if you take that natural capacity and we deepen it by recognising that resolutions have to be about so much more than mere willpower, and if we strengthen it with the transforming grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, then who knows just how much change you might be able to see in yourself or in others. As uh, Richard mentioned, um, we've looked at the kind of a core resolution that we might make in terms of our relationship to God and how to configure or reconfigure that centred in Jesus Christ even more definitively. And last uh, couple of weeks we've looked at community and households and, and this evening we keep moving outward uh, and reflect on the issue of work. Uh, I'm going to break it down into uh, three points. Uh, the what and the why of work. The temptations of work. And then thirdly, the renewal of work, which will then give us some opportunity by way of conclusion uh, to just reflect on what kinds of resolutions you might make about your work this year. The what and why, uh, temptations, renewal, and therefore, what resolutions we might make. Well, first then, let's look at the what and why of work. Uh, you may have some uh, historical sense. You'll, you'll know that we live in a very particular time in history uh, where first of all the Industrial Revolution and then uh, more recently the Information Revolution have uh, pretty much revolutionised uh, modern life. Uh, at least at the surface level, that is. And the pull of that is that it might kind of lead us to define work according to our post-industrial information age context. Uh, rather than according to something more universal and enduring. And so uh, we are going to focus... Uh, particularly on the opening chapters of Genesis, just very briefly, uh, that give us uh, what I see as the biggest and deepest picture, the richest kind of vision of what work is and why work is. Now what's uh, clear from uh, the beginning is that even though creation is good and very good, it's not perfect. It's really important to see that, actually. Don't, don't talk about creation as being perfect, that's a mistake. Uh, no, it's good and very good, but it's not perfect. And in, a, in what I, I think is a remarkable statement, we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, that there's a reason for that. There were no human beings. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not yet caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. You hear the point, there's, there's nothing happening in, in this uh, second, uh, sort of, if you like, up-close snapshot of creation. There's nothing happening, there's, no, there's nothing taking place there, in part because there's no one to till the ground. There's no one to make actual the potential in creation. And so the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the result is wonderful. Verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, um, think about that for the, just a moment. That's just such an interesting thing to say, isn't it? 
when human labor and ingenuity is added to the potential of creation, bringing order and coherence to it, then amazing things happen. And and you'll see how the author uh, summarizes it. Beauty and utility. That is, the, the elements of creation are harnessed in such a way that they make beautiful things and useful things. That's what work is. Any activity by us human beings which brings order and harmony and productivity to the natural world, taking the things that God has made with the potential that God has embedded in them and making something new. Either or both artistic or useful. And you can see uh, perhaps why that's such a fruitful way to define work. When you define work that way, well, it's pretty clear that tilling a field is work. I don't think any of us would have any kind of confusion about that. Yes, tilling a field is work. Uh, And likewise, looking after the children in the house on the side of the field is work. Or painting a beautiful picture of the field is work. Or actually uh, praying in your house for the harvest of the field, that's work too. And running a church service to give thanks for the harvest that God gives his work as well. It's all work, actually. Because it's all part of the way that God has made human beings to interact with the world. To till it, and as we read later in Genesis chapter 2, to keep it. That is, to conserve, to preserve it. Which then leads to the why of work. You see, it's, it's true that uh, work nowadays uh, earns you an income, especially in uh, that element of work which is employment. Uh, in fact, in world terms, um, an income far greater than most of the world's population has ever had uh, for most of the world's history. And it's also true that work can provide you with a sense of fulfillment um, and, and significance, that you're actually achieving something. And it may even be that work gives you uh, respect from your colleagues, your peers, kudos. Work can do all of that. But it's really important to see that those can only ever be secondary purposes of work, the byproducts of work, rather than their primary objective. Now, the, the why of work needs to be much deeper than that, just to, to earn a good income or to feel good about yourself or to get respect from other people. The why of work has got to do with the fact that we live in a world deliberately created by good, uh, by God as good, but not perfect. And therefore, there's work for us to do. Bringing order and creativity and coherence to, me- to bear to make beautiful and useful things and act fundamentally of love for God and for neighbour. That's why it matters. That's why it was there before the fall. That's why we'll be there in glory as well. You see, work is an act of love for God because it honours and respects his purposes for us in his world. And work is an act of love for your neighbour because uh, each one of us is an embodied physical creature with hopelessly inefficient and fragile bodies that need fueling multiple times every day. That's called meals. And we're so feeble, we need protection from the heat 
and the cold in clothes and shelter to within a very, very narrow band. So we need homes. And we're spiritual creatures who need knowledge and music and poetry and worship to fill our souls. We need useful things and we need beautiful things. And providing those things for other people is an act of love. Do you see how work uh, is deeply connected with what it means to be a human being? It's not just accidental, it's not a mistake, it's, it's not, oh, I just, if only I could be the kind of person that didn't have to work. No. There is no such person who's not created to work. It's why the inability or privation of work can be such a destructive experience. If you've ever known people to suffer that. And it's also why it's crucial to distinguish work from employment. You see, I've, I've tried to be a little bit careful uh, in doing that. Employment, that, that is when you work uh, in an employer-employee kind of relationship, employment is confined to pretty much only one of the phases or ages of life that sociologists identify. Um, the, the first phase, uh, pre-adult, is kind of childhood up to the time of employment, um, has uh, enormously important work as part of it. Hardly any of it gets paid, actually. None of it's related to the labour market. Uh, the uh, second phase, that period typically of employment, um, and, and work in the home or the factory or the office or the field, uh, although lots of it is not on the employment basis either, that, that kind of runs, what, I guess 20 to 65, thereabouts. But it, the age is not necessarily the, the, the defining characteristic. It's that, that employment phase. Uh, the third phase is uh, what you might call post-full-time employment, but while still physically able and active, that increasingly multi-decade period of what some uh, still call active retirement. It's a silly kind of idea, isn't it? Because what, is, what do you retire from? You retire from work, you think. But no! No, you just retire from employment. You've got heaps of work to do. And then the fourth phase of life is that final period of physical and possibly mental decline where you're increasingly non-active. And, and you see, the point is this. While employment only occupies one part of one of those phases, there is work to do in all of them. And, and maybe your task tonight is to figure out what your work is if you're not in employment. To not exclude yourself from that. There is wonderful, fruitful, beautiful work to do that can energise and excite us both in our jobs and beyond our jobs. Now, um, I realise that this all sounds very rosy, and I actually I love my job. I actually really, really like my work, and so I feel quite positive about all this, and say, so, yes, this is exactly right. Um, but, of course, the Scriptures are aware, and the truth be told, I'm aware too, uh, in my own context, that this vision of work can more often be seen in prospect than in experience. And so the curse that's laid upon the world and upon uh, the humans after the first sin, uh, including the curse of the interaction uh, between human beings in the world, is fundamentally to do with the frustration of work. 
that characteristic human task. Pain in childbearing, and I would uh, suggest to add childrearing, that most fundamental element of human work, and thorns and thistles in production. And if it's profoundly true to say that work is good as created according to the grace of God, it's also true to say that work is hard according to the judgment of God. Which leads, second, to the temptations of work. You see, because work is good, we can invest in it too much, turning it from being a good thing into being an ultimate thing. And because work is hard, we can invest in it too little and evade our responsibilities. And actually, because we're very clever when it comes to sin, we can manage to do both of them at the same time, over-investing in one in order to under-invest in another. Let me just spell that out a little bit. On the one hand, because work is good, we can invest too much in it. Uh, I mentioned uh, before the secondary uh, goods that come from work and income, uh, for some people, sizable or even very sizable income, uh, that, that feeling of significance, that you're making a difference, that you're actually out there doing something, uh, and possibly even being respected and honoured among your colleagues and friends. And, and e- each of those is a very intoxicating thing. I mean, you, you, you may long to find out just how intoxicating it is to have money and... and uh, Uh, Many of you never had it. Uh, Well, it is. And it just gets more and more intoxicating, that is. Uh, but, But maybe even better is that sense that I'm a someone. I'm having an impact. I'm making a difference. And people see it. And they take me seriously because of it. And those things can become so intoxicating that they become your primary goal in work. Your work as an employee enables you to become wealthy and so you overwork. Oh my goodness, there are plenty of people doing that. Your work as a parent gives you an immense sense of satisfaction and so you you kind of begin to live your life through your kids. Uh, Your work as a student gives you enormous kudos as people are endlessly asking you what the right answer to things are because you actually know. But it means you become stressed and competitive about your studies. And what's happening there in each case is that the goodness of work, the good things that work produces, those things are becoming oxygen for your soul so that your work becomes not a service of God but a substitute for God. But on the other hand, because work is hard, it's possible to invest too little in it. Uh, This is the issue that the Apostle Paul addresses in his letter to the Christians in Colossae, and especially as he writes to slaves for whom I imagine the hardness of work was more obviously apparent than the goodness of work. Okay, I think it's difficult for us to even contemplate the vast extent and misery of slavery in the first century. Ancient historians estimate that there were about 60 million slaves uh, in the Roman Empire, which was between a third and a half of the total population. 
Um, I, I don't know whether this is where the phrase came from, but you can imagine it's where you talk about how the other half live, right? Because the whole deal was that between a third and a half of people were, lived lives of utter uh, subjugation and misery in order to make the other half slightly more comfortable. And into that context, Paul's words are revolutionary, not, not in a violent sense, although there were plenty of slave uprisings, actually, in the Roman Empire, put down with massive brutality. No, Paul's words are revolutionary in the spiritual sense because the overwhelming temptation when you're a slave is to get away with as little as you needed to do, to get away with what you could, to, to do what Paul calls eye service, literally. To, to work, but only while you're being watched. Uh, now, you know eye service. Uh, apparently, disposing of coffee grounds from the espresso machine down the sink is bad for the environment. Uh, they should go into the bin. And I know this because my wife has told me, I think, approximately 426 million times. Um, and so whenever she is in the kitchen and I'm making coffee, then 100.0% of the time the coffee grounds go in the bin because I do not need to hear it another time. I mean, I'm just telling you, I don't. But when she's not there, that percentage slips. I mean, it does. It goes down to about three. And, and that slippage is called eye service. That's the second temptation of work, to just do it minimally, to get away with whatever you can. But then, as I said, there's a third temptation, which is really a combination of the first two, which is to overinvest in some aspects of your work as the reason or excuse for underinvesting in other aspects of your work. You see, by what we've done by taking uh, the biblical approach to what work is, not just employment, uh, so much more than that, anything that orders and brings creativity and fruitfulness uh, to the potentiality of creation, um, it's pretty clear that each of us has various works to do, various ways in which we bring order and fruitfulness and through that blessing to others. Uh, th there is the work of employment, yes, say as electrician or accountant, uh, but then there is also the work of homemaking and child raising and then there's the work of community building, being part, say, of the local uh, scout group leadership team or volunteering to teach English. In other words, it's not so much that there's a work-life balance. I, that, I think, is a mistake, isn't it? Because it says that there's, there's work and then there's this other stuff which is life. No, no, no. Um, there's just balance. There's the balance of work, which is all of our lives, which is the balance of love, because that's what our work is, love for God and love for neighbour. I, I prefer to say there's a life-life balance. And one of the temptations we face is to be life-life imbalanced, to invest too much in one and too little in another aspect. Uh, when our, uh, my wife and my uh, first child was born, uh, I was a student doing uh, that important work of learning. And um, learning had fewer thorns and thistles attached to it than looking after a baby. And so I was unbelievably diligent about looking up and photocopying every single primary, secondary, tertiary, required, suggested, or even vaguely hinted at reading or reference 
that was ever made mention of in the, in the lectures. I could easily delay going home for, say, six hours by hanging out in the library, even just reading random books. I was doing important work. It's real work. I was over-investing in one work because I was under-investing in another. So what resources does the apostle give us to deal with these temptations? What he does is he renews work in the light of the grace of Jesus Christ. As you notice his fundamental point to slaves, uh, it's just, it's so bold, it's so stark, it's so un-kind of interpretable. Do you know what I mean? Whether you like it or not, it just says it. You serve the Lord Christ. To first century slaves, the, the bottom of the bottom, miserably deprived of dignity and self-determination, the Apostle Paul gives a status as nothing less than servants of the Lord of the world. You serve the Lord Christ. Uh, we're going to talk about mission next week. But I want you to hear this as loud and clear as you possibly can. Uh, it's just biblically false to say that the only work of the Lord, or the only way to serve Jesus Christ is the work of mission or evangelism or church. It's just, Paul says it, do you know what I mean? You slaves, in your slave work, serve the Lord Christ. And we can see how it's true, can't we? Um, If work is what we've said it is, fundamentally an act of love for God and love for neighbour, bringing order and creativity and fruitfulness to creation, and if Jesus Christ, as Paul uh, says in chapter 1, is the firstborn, the inheritor and owner of all of that creation, if he's the one through whom and for whom all of that creation was made, if he's the one in whom all of that potentiality of creation holds together, if he's the living and true Lord, then in every way that we truly work, we are, as a matter of spiritual reality, serving the Lord Christ. And don't you let anyone tell you otherwise. Now, there are some ways in which that's obvious. Uh, Jesus healed people. Doctors heal people. Doctors get to know pretty much straightforwardly that they serve Jesus, right? Because they're doing Jesus stuff. Jesus taught people. Teachers teach people. Teachers serve Jesus. But go back to the doctor one for a moment. You see, it's a good example for a number of reasons. Uh, On the one hand, there's actually a great deal that goes into public health. uh, And my understanding is that uh, the drains and sewerage that we have put in there by plumbers and town planners are every bit as, if not more important, to public health than the medical system. So the people who get to feel good about health ought to be plumbers and town planners, right? They're the ones. But actually, uh, let me go one step further, it's, it's, maybe it's got more to do with the electricity manufacturers. You see, keeping food in our fridges without it going off And being able to heat our homes without burning fires so that we don't have to breathe in smoke, two causes 
actually two of the greatest causes of health problems in the world today. You, I mean, I don't know if you know that, but that's where most people get sick from, those two things. That's solved by electricity. And so maybe it's the electricity makers that can stake a claim to being essential to public health. My, my point is that the way the world actually works is a little more complicated than it appears. What constitutes loving others might not be on the surface. It might be a little bit deeper. Uh, last year I was talking with a friend uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, he's a banker. And you, you can say that word with real venom, can't you? Banker. He's a banker who does multi-gazillion dollar deals for loans to construct those incredibly tall, thin apartment blocks in Hong Kong. I don't know if you've seen them. Uh, they're on the side of cliffs and they just sort of, like needles come out of the cliffs, they go up. You think that they're going to fall over in the wind and if they did, they'd just sort of like a domino, they'd just take them all out. But they don't. They stand up and people live in them and, and survive. And uh, he was trying to express how he served the Lord Christ in his work. He was reflecting on this passage actually. And he's sort of fluffing around and he was saying that he tried to set a good example in the office and treat people well and he tried to share his faith with people who were there and that's all good stuff. Notice what's wrong with it though. It doesn't actually say anything about the work that he did. And, and, and you know, if you know me, you'll know that this was a surprising response on my part. I, I kind of got frustrated and, and blurted out. Um, don't you think that being part of the system that provides housing for people is actually a way of loving them and so serving the Lord Christ? And it's like, it's like this light bulb went on. Even. Yeah, probably is. That's not a bad point. I thought, I wish more people would tell me that that wasn't a bad point, you know? It was... It was, it was it was kind of obvious once he saw it that the business he was in was not this hateful business of making... He was in the business of providing homes for people about one of the most loving things that can actually take place. He didn't do it personally. He didn't make homes and give them away. He financed it. The very work he did served the Lord Christ. And, and when you see that, when you understand that whatever work it is that you're doing is serving the Lord Christ, if it's real work, it changes everything. You see, when it's Christ you're serving, it means that you won't over-invest in your work for those secondary things. Money or impact or kudos. It's, it's so interesting what the Apostle says to the slaves. Did you, did you notice there uh, in verse 24, he says, you already in his grace have the ultimate thing. That's, that's why you don't need to work for those secondary things. He says, know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. It's this quite sort of um, uh, absolute term, the inheritance. What, what the apostle is saying is that from Jesus Christ you'll receive glory, the riches of the inheritance provided by the Father. Uh, I love the pictures in the book of Revelation uh, where uh, it's, all, it's all sort of figurative. The, 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 you know, the, the, the gates are made of pearls, pearls with the single most precious item there, uh, and the streets are made of gold. Why are the streets made of gold in the New Jerusalem in the, the vision of, uh, of John in Revelation? Because the thing that you walk on and that cattle poo on in glory 
that is the crappiest thing, is the most expensive thing that we have here. That's how much better glory... Now, I don't think there are streets and, 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 and I don't think they're made of gold. It's, it's picture language, right? But it's, it's designed to say that that inheritance is unimaginably valuable and Paul says, you have it. It's yours. And when that operates in your soul, the temptations to overwork to get some of those secondary things just melts away, doesn't it? You don't need that stuff. You have the inheritance. And when it's Christ you're serving, it means that you won't underinvest in your work either. You won't do eye service for your boss or your spouse uh, for their approval. But uh, verse 22, you'll be wholehearted about it, the apostle says, uh, fearing, honouring, respecting the Lord. Um, and he says, putting yourself into it. It's actually, that's a bit of a wussy translation. Uh, literally, it, it has, put your soul into it. Now, that would be a dangerous thing to say, don't you think? That what you've got to do is put your soul into your work. A little bit idolatrous, perhaps? Except when you know that the one you're serving in your work is the Lord Christ. You see, it doesn't matter how hopeless your boss is. Because he or she is not your real boss. Jesus is. And so it makes sense to work heart and soul for him. And, and when it's Christ you're serving, it means that you won't combine the temptations, over-investing in one work and under-investing in another, because all of your life has all of your works and it's all for Jesus Christ. And it would make no sense whatsoever to trade off faithful, fruitfulness in one area and failure in another area like that, because it's all serving the Lord Christ. Life-life balance, as we put it, will make much more sense. Do you see how all of work, whether employment or otherwise, in whatever phase of life, is gloriously renewed by the apostle in this moment, given dignity and value when it's put into its proper place as serving the Lord Christ. Okay. Given that, what resolutions might you make about your work this year? Well, firstly, I think um, it may well be that you need to start by figuring out what your work is. Uh, it may be that you've never thought of your school time as work, as serving the Lord Christ. It's just what you do because if you don't, your parents get fined. Um, well, no, you serve the Lord Christ. So put your heart and soul into it. But don't put too much value on it as though it was going to provide you with your significance or kudos. You get that. You've got the inheritance waiting for you after all. It, it might be that the first thing for you to do is to figure out what works you actually do and to figure out how they function as an expression of love for God and for neighbour. Where does what I do fit into the way the world works? It might be that you're a banker, and, and you just thought that you make loans to people in order to get extract interest from them, and that's a really terrible thing. Well, actually, that's not true. You do housing loans, I mean, that provides one, it's one little 
contribution towards providing one of the most significant things that human beings can have. It's an act of love as big as anything is. Now, it's important to remember that your contribution will be tiny. Okay, don't, don't, uh, don't fall for the myth that your goal in life is to change the world. Right? You, I know young people change the world, all that kind of stuff. It ain't going to happen. And if it does, it won't be because you try it, just because of, it just happens. Okay? We all make very, very small contributions. And my point is, that's okay. That's okay. Because it's the Lord Christ we're serving. He runs the world happily, not you. So all is well. Do what he gives you to do. Because every part counts. As done for the Lord. At the same time, it may be that as you go through this process of reflection and try and sort of run your work life and different, the works, different works that you do through this kind of biblical understanding of what work is, that you conclude that your work really doesn't actually function in this way. A mafia hitman who comes to Christ would, I think, need to reach that conclusion about 15 seconds after his conversion, don't you think? No, my work's probably not a service of the Lord Christ. And it may be that you, you draw that conclusion yourself, that, that actually I'm, my work is entirely indifferent on these grounds. Now, it's worth being careful here because to some extent all of our work is compromised. That's true whether you work uh, out there in, uh, in commerce, in the city, in industry. Uh, it's true whether you work in the church. I, I'm, I mean, I know there, are, there is at least one church that is totally and entirely perfect in every way, uh, it's not here, it's somewhere, I don't know where it is, but it's got to be someone, somewhere, surely. Um, it's true that every work context, every community, every endeavour is compromised. Every one of us participates in systems that are both blessing and curse. There's no absolute purity available. You're not going to leave the really terrible law firm and join the perfect, there is no such thing. So you need to be cautious about drawing the conclusion that you just can't do your Christian thing in any one place. But with all of that said, I'm going to swing back to the other side and say it may be that you'll decide that your work is so compromised, so marginal, there's so little to no love for God or neighbour in it that your resolution will be to do different work. Or maybe that you decide that it's such a bad fit with you that the same result will follow. It may be that you're doing work for all the wrong reasons, making secondary reasons, primary reasons, and you need to stop that, to change that, to stop investing in work as though it could on its own lights feed your soul. It can't. It never will. You will never get enough if you try to feed your soul with your work. Don't do it. Don't fall into that trap. But then again, it may be that you're under-investing in work, going through the motions, and you need to resolve to serve the Lord Christ with uh, a much more wholeheartedness and much more whole-souledness. Uh, I love this. Apparently, Christian slaves very quickly came to be sold in the slave marketplace for much higher prices in the first few centuries after Christ than non-Christian slaves. Why do you think that was? Because they read Colossians 3. 
Because those slaves slaved like they were slaving the Lord Jesus Christ. They served knowing that they were serving the Lord Christ. They were just really great slaves. So people paid a high price for them. That's the kind of work you should do too. And maybe you need to reflect and resolve about that. Or maybe that you need to bring all the various works that you're doing as your service to Christ and so bring far greater life-life balance to bear. Or maybe something completely different. What I want to do is give you uh, just a moment uh, to do your own work, your own reflecting. And then I want to gather us in prayer and ask uh, the Lord who we serve in our work to strengthen us for that work. So take just a few moments. This is, this is serious time. Uh, you Don't do anything else. Do this work now. Let's pray together. Uh, Our Lord Christ, whose work was a great work of love for God and for neighbour, so fill our hearts and souls and imaginations with a vision of how we can work for you in this world. That in our employment, in our art, in all the different ways in which we bring order and fruitfulness, we are serving you. And so grant to us the joy of knowing ourselves to be good and faithful servants. And we ask it for your glory. Amen.